So we're now sat here at the University of Liverpool with Professor Rob Mars, who is a professor of applied plant biology. Applied plant biology, and he's going to sort of talk me through effects of heather burning, effects of moorland management for grouse, mm -hmm. and the positives and negatives of that. So, what happens if you don't burn heather? Well, you get more heather in the first instance. It grows very tall. Uh, and in some cases, it will move towards woodland. So you get trees invading uh, and a move away from an open moorland habitat to a woodland one. And so that's sort of the rewilding concept that people are pushing for on certain, from certain sides. It's one aspect of a, a rewilding policy. How does that look? Is that, is that positive? Is that negative? Basically, it depends what the public or the owner or whoever wants. Because if it goes to woodland, then if that's fine, that's fine. But if you want to maintain a moorland, then quite clearly it's not so fine. And of course, any additional biomass will increase the fire risk. Okay. So an unmanaged moorland is more at risk of fire before it moves into that forest stage? Well, any moorland is a fire risk. Okay. The issue is how much fuel load is on the ground. The more the fuel load, you would expect to have a hotter, more damaging wildfire. Okay. This is the case with heather. If it becomes very long and bushy, there's more of it, and hence there is more fire risk. On the other hand, if trees start to invade, there is even more <laughs> biomass. And a greater fire risk. And that fire risk, I suppose, up to a point will be eliminated when a woodland is in place? Uh, no. Or is it the uh, peat base that...? Because the biomass is still liable to burn and the peat underneath is also liable to burn. Okay, it's fascinating. <laughs> so essentially the ground is always at risk of fire, it's just about minimising that risk of fire. Anything with peat, and peat is of course just dead plant material for the most part, there are some dead animals as well, but mainly dead plant material, and that is a, a substance that will burn if it's dry enough. If it's dry, dry enough, it will burn. Normally of course peat is wet, and where it is wet and remains wet, it is less liable to burn. But even in a very, in a very dry year, peat surface peats will burn. Okay. So the, the moorland itself, apart from all of the fringe benefits that the owner might do the management for, is it, is it ecologically a good thing? Is it, does it have value? Well, it does. There's a, a paper just been written by uh, staff of the Game Conservancy uh, showing that in a managed grouse moor, the conservation benefits are, are much better than unmanaged moors. Uh, but of course, it depends what you want as a target. If you are happy to accept a burned mosaic, then you will have a different suite of bird species, for example, from uh, an unmanaged moor. So to some extent, management will impinge on what you get, but it depends on what you want. It's just a, a different balance, essentially, yeah, is what you're working absolutely, towards. Absolutely, yeah. What, what does rewilding the uplands look like in, in your head? Well, <laughs> there's a whole host of 
uh, issues it's a big attached one. to you. Uh, at the simplest level, it's removal of stock, grazing livestock like sheep, the removal of um, burning, and allowing the uh, vegetation, the ecosystem, to move in a more natural way. If you go to a more intensive level, you would perhaps add in carnivores that are missing. And the obvious ones are the lynx, the brown bear and the wolf, because they don't exist in Britain. We do not have a top carnivore or mega carnivore layer in our food chains. Apart from ourselves? Apart from ourselves, yes. Sheep, do they influence it positively, negatively? What was the impact of too many sheep and what is the impact of not enough sheep? Well, too many sheep will alter the vegetation probably towards a grassland. You will not get scrub invasion and you will probably lose your heather and move to a more grass-based uh, habitat, maybe Millennia cairulia, the purple moorgrass, or um, other um, grasses or, or, or other grass-like species. So you will get a change in the, the, the look of the uplands. They will become more grass dominated. If you've got too little sheep, well, you will potentially get scrub invasion, tree invasion, uh, and certainly um, you will get a shift in the balance of species, but it will take some time. My experiments in the North Pennines show that grazing does have an effect, but we're talking decades to really make significant shifts in species composition rather than two or three years. It, it, it's probably not in our lifetime. So we're planning for the future with any, anything we're putting in place Absolutely, now? Absolutely, yes. Is heather coverage going up or down? I think it's about stable at the moment. Okay. Um, I, the evidence for this is pretty weak, um, but I think it's pretty stable. Um, we're, we're, we have had a period of fairly intense management to maintain it like that. This is breaking down now, but at the moment the, I, I think the heather is fairly stable. Okay. How do you feel about grouse shooting on the whole? Well, I have virtually no, no feeling about grouse shooting on the whole. I mean, I don't grouse shoot, never have grouse uh, uh, shot. Uh, and um, as such, uh, I see it just as a, a, a management in the, in, in the uplands. Uh, the positive thing about grouse shooting is, in my view, they produce a mosaic of heather patches using prescribed burning that's done over the winter and early spring uh, in order to provide new shoots for the, the, the um, grouse chicks. I uh, see the, the patchwork as a means of helping to prevent wildfire. And wildfire is a, a big concern on unmanaged moors over the last few years, obviously. Well, uh, not just the last few years, it's, it, it's a, an ongoing issue because you have a fire-prone, fire-adapted shrub that is a dominant species uh, and in a dry year it will burn very easily and once it's started it's very difficult to stop as we found out last year uh, over uh, to the east of Manchester. You talked to me before we got on camera about re-wetting, mm -hmm. is, is that a viable alternative to burning? Well it is an alternative uh, and certainly there are others who would argue that it is a better technique and in theory uh, it, it 
they're probably right. A, a wet habitat should prevent, prevent wildfire. The problem is no one's actually, at least not as far as I'm aware, uh, been able to demonstrate that it actually changes a heather dominant moor to one that is fire resistant. Uh, I suspect that in a dry year, most wetted up moors will still burn. Uh, and I also suspect that it will take many years for the dominant heather to uh, disappear or get to very low levels. But all this can be, uh, it needs to be tested. It needs to be tested experimentally. There are lots of people trying to re-wet the, the, the uplands. And really, I, d I don't think that there's been enough time to demonstrate that it really is a, a viable alternative. So the uplands were drained at one point? Well, or is it they're trying to make it wetter <laughs> than it's ever been? Well, <laughs> some have been drained badly. Okay. There was a, a, a programme of moor gripping in the 20th century, which was quite frankly an appalling waste of public money. And even after we knew it was useless, we so still... So it was a publicly funded... Oh yes, well, oh, wow. a lot of it was. Even after we knew it didn't work, uh, people were still paid to do it. It was just plain silly. Uh, and there are many areas where they're trying to fill these grips in. And I actually applaud those efforts because they should never have been put in in the first place. Uh, on other moors, some have been drained and some uh, have uh, just natural watercourses because water will erode the uh, channels. Uh, that's how rivers form. And quite clearly, um, peat is not a particularly solid substrate. It's plant material. It washes away quite easily, uh, and, um, and so, so the water content and the water courses on walls are, are ever changing, essentially. Well, I wouldn't say they're ever changing, but they certainly they are. They, they have increased. Uh, they're naturally going to increase through time, uh, and wetting them up will, to some extent, reverse this process. One would hope. However, as far as wildfire prevention is concerned, I remain to be convinced that it is a viable alternative. So, talking more short term, mm -hmm. the next few years, look at the public moors that have burnt mm -hmm. over the last few years. What would you do to prevent that happening again? Well, I would have a, fire pre a wildfire prevention policy or strategy in place. This, in my view, should include prescribed burning, or you could cut it. You could, you could cut the, the vegetation, it's... Fire breaks. Well, fire breaks and patches to, to, to stop um, the, the, the... I mean, you won't stop wildfire. Wildfire will occur anyway. What will happen is if you have patches of young heather, the wildfire, the fire, wildfire will go through less quickly, it will ha have be, have be less hot. And easier to put out and easier to control in those instances. Much easier to put out. Moreover, if it's young heather, it's more likely to regenerate quickly so you don't get so much erosion. If you've got old heather and it burns hot, it causes more damage and it's much, much slower to re regenerate back to any sort of vegetation. Okay. I don't know, That's, that is fascinating. So it's, it's a case of if you want your more to regenerate faster, you need to you need to burn it. 
or cut it. You could you, cut you, it. But you need to the, keep certain areas lower. Because Yeah, because the well, it's just cutting the fuel load. The yeah. fuel load is the key, in my view. If you cut it, you will have the same effect, more or less. Is fire a natural part of Heather's cycle anyway? Well, all of the Ericaceae are fire adapted. The seeds germinate better if there is smoke or chemicals in the smoke. Really? Uh, yeah, they really do. They regenerate quicker. They also re-sprout from burnt or cut bases very quickly. Essentially, the main heather in this country, Colina vulgaris, is a fire-adapted, fire-prone shrub, and that's one of the reasons it's particularly dominant. So, uh, a mild political question on that. Do we need as much heather cover as we've got? Or is that the easiest way to cut back the wildfire risk of heather moorland just to have less heather? Well, what do you put in its place? That's a You've question. You've got to put something what else What do you do with upland well, well, it's uh, it could go to forest, forest on peat, is a, a, a wildfire problem. Yeah. It's not really a biological haven of anything. You could turn so it to, 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 to grassland, that would be not a good thing either over much of Britain. Um, the, the aim of wetting up is to make it a more moss-based uh, habitat, one that's based on sphagnum, the, the, one of the key peat-building mosses. Um, and, you know, that's that's another alternative. That's the wetting up approach. But essentially what, what you're saying is that, well, I suppose that's, the, uh, in terms of public decision, they can obviously decide on that. But do you think that the government should be able to control private ownership on Upland Britain? Well, that's a matter for the government, not for me. <laughs> um, as I said, I have no axe to grind with respect to yeah. um, grouse shooting uh, or indeed any other management uh, approach. My interest is purely scientific in that I want to understand how the habitats work. But you have no, you know, have end game, you have no, have end, no end game, game bias. In mind. No, no, no. Well, not, I mean, you're, everybody's biased in some way, but I try not to be because quite clearly, it taints um, the science. You, 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 you go where the data show you, where the results show you. Uh, and certainly there, there is no, um, you know, forward thinking in that regard with respect to some prefer, preferred treatment or objective that I have. We'll go back to the, the long game argument. Mm. What research needs to be done next in terms of upland management? Or do you think that is a case of, if you're, you're saying that burning or cutting is necessary, or mm. is definitely beneficial, certainly to public moors, do you think that's something that should be put in place? And if so, how do we go about actually getting these well, these things done. the conservation agencies tend to uh, not be in favour of burning or indeed cutting at the moment uh, because they would prefer a wetting up solution to provide a, a moss-based, sphagnum-based solution. Um, I would like to see research in that actually show that it reduces fuel load and reduces um, fire risk. I think that, that's, a, that's a key uh, bit of information that's needed. Uh, and secondly, I think that uh, further research in uh, burning and cutting would be useful. Most of our knowledge about burning comes from a single experiment that I've worked on uh, f that was set up 
two years after I was born. Um, uh, and it's often criticised because it's supposedly atypical. Well, it's atypical in that it's a tigger. It's the only one. There, are, there is no other. And that's the problem. You need to have, in any good science, you need to have good quality experiments in a range of situations. And unfortunately, in the uplands, time is not on your side. It always takes time. We're t I mean, we're talking decadal okay. impacts on burning. So there should um, be no rash decisions made on any of this until more science, more research is done to the actual science behind it. And it, it will take some time. Yes, it will take some time. I'd like to see more experiments, but at the moment there are very few. Who would fund them? Well, it would. Who should fund them? <laughs> well, funding science is always difficult. Um, the obvious place is the research councils, but research councils tend to fund research that's in the three to five, maybe on a, a, a good grant, ten years. Um, it needs to be funded by one of the conservation agencies, really, uh, or a charity, for that matter, because you need to have continuity of funding over a very, very Th long 30 to time. 40 years, we're talking. Oh, at least, minimum. yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, we're talking at, at least several decades. But there is results we'll be able to draw before the end, I presume. So it's Some of them, yeah. yes, yes. But you see, in the experiment that I talked about earlier, the, the Tigger, you have a situation where the person who set the experiments up knew full well that he would not see all the results come to fruition for 40 years. It's it, a long game. It could not be done in any other way. So 40 years. What was his experiment? Can you tell me more about it? Well, it's a replicated experiment. It's got uh, three burning treatments. It's got a, a plus and minus grazing. Uh, and there are some plots that have never been burned for about 100 years. Uh, I don't think the experimental design is, is the best it could have been, but I was only once it, two. Once it started, <laughs> you don't, yeah, you can't change yeah, it, I suppose. You can't change it, really. Uh, so, so you know, as I say, I was only two when it was set up, uh, and you cannot change it, it you're, it's set in stone. So having well-designed experiments, well-replicated experiments, preferably on different parts of the country would provide a better knowledge base than what we have now. So we could actually act intelligently as opposed to emotively, yeah. which is yeah. obviously what everyone's currently going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel that, that science and politics and emotions seem to be being put into a bit of a blender at the moment on, well, this, on the up issues of Upland Britain? I think we should take the emotion out of it completely uh, and look at the data, the research data that comes out because often in science, uh, you get a, a completely different answer to your perceived wisdom beforehand. And that's why you do proper experiments. So you shouldn't be in search of answers, you should be in search of science. Absolutely, and, and the, the, the answers are what comes out of the, the experiments. You don't um, prejudge them and you don't design experiments to prove something works or something doesn't work. You, you do an experiment to test a hypothesis if the hypothesis is rejected, it's rejected, and you if it's accepted, you you move on and design other experiments. So, so that's how you you move forward. Unfortunately, in this area, 
there's a, a lot of rhetoric and a lot of um, emotion and it's best to keep it out of um, of science. It's almost impossible unfortunately but yeah, it would be a lovely so thing if, yeah, if people actually listen to science. That's, that's the way it should be and there are conflicting views between scientists who have different opinions and different approaches and that's okay as well because that's part of the ongoing debate in science as to the best way forward. You said everything certainly regarding this subject is ever-changing so mm. there is no sort of pinpoint in time you can take and say this was fact or this is now fact. But see, if you look at the pol politics in the 1990s the view in central England was to have more heather, more heather and more heather. Why was that? Uh, that was the policy, it was deemed to be a good thing. Um, well it's, it's a came, very rare habitat. Th th this, came yes, th this came down from, from, from DEFRA uh, but um, now the emphasis has, has moved on to peat conservation. Carbon storage. Carbon storage, which I fully agree with. The issue is... Can you explain carbon storage for us? Well, carbon is, is one of the greenhouse gases, or carbon dioxide is, is a greenhouse gas, and quite clearly, um, if you lock carbon away in, um, from the atmosphere in something like a peat bog, you are accumulating carbon and getting it out of the atmosphere. It's effectively a historic record of life since the last ice age. Right. You know, you may, in some sites in, in Britain, you may have, what, four, six, eight metres of peat. And the, down at the bottom eight, eighth metre, you're looking at something that happened probably 6,000 years ago. And you can well, see the carbon in the soil. You can see it, you can measure it, yes. It's, it's quite easy because that's what it is, carbon. Peat is approximately 50% carbon. Yeah, that's why you can burn Plus it. or minus a, a, a few percent. It's, it's about, yes, that, that's why it burns. Um, you know, and anything that goes into peat, uh, peat is organic matter that doesn't decompose because it's cold and wet. So there's no microbes or no, very little microbial activity. So it just accumulates, and that's why it keeps building layers. And that uh, is, you know, how peat bogs form. But I mean, if you go to, if you um, have any animals that die and are buried in peat, they will probably be, remain, you know, mummified in effect, because they just don't decompose, they, 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 they mummify. There was Lindo man found in a yeah. peat bog down in, in um, at the bottom end of uh, Cheshire, which um, you know was intact, in you could see what he was wearing, how he died, yeah. and what he had for his lunch. It was so 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 well preserved. So the, the, they are a, a record of the past, and that's why many scientists use peak cores to provide a historic representation of how ecosystems have changed over the last well. 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 years. Okay, so why have they? Why is that now so important that carbon storage is, is so important now? And why, because that relates back to burning. They think burning is bad for the carbon storage of the peat. How does that work? Well, if you burn, yeah. you will remove Release some, some carbon. carbon. It goes without saying. However, if you burn properly, it's my contention that you will reduce the peat accumulation rate, but it still accumulates carbon. It's just not as fast. So there's a trade-off, in my view, between accumulating carbon, which it still does when you use prescribed burning, at least in some places, 
uh, on the amount you lose. And that's the plant taking carbon from the atmosphere and putting yeah. it back into the soil. Relative to wildfire. Which would be really bad. Which, if it gets into the peat, can, you can burn off a lot of carbon uh, very, very quickly. Because you get peat pipes under the, on the, uh, in, in, the, in the peat and you have kind of it burning at one end and you put the fire out and suddenly it, it pop pops up. up somewhere else. So, so, and sometimes fires can go on for at least a year, a very long time, certainly months, so before it's put out. It's very, very difficult if you get a really bad wildfire on peat. It's very, very bad. And everybody agrees on this. Yeah. Everybody agrees this is bad. The issue is how to prevent the damage. And I would argue that some burning causes some damage. Yeah. But so you're regulating it, but it's regulated it's on our terms then. with respect to wildfire. But cutting, therefore, should be preferable to all of those from a carbon storage perspective. Um, I don't think enough work's been done on cutting. I mean, the, the best experiment on this was published in 1971. Jesus. So we are talking a long time ago. Uh, there are people who use it. Uh, now and there's a lot of good machines for doing it now and I suspect that more experiments are you know will be needed because what do you do with the stuff that's cut? Well I presume it just gets kicked out the back of the machine or back onto the mulch. Well yeah but it acts as a mulch it's uh, in itself as a fire hazard in dry <laughs> weather so you know it's not quite as simple as just saying Oh yes, it's cutting, it'll do the same job as burning. Burning removes some of the carbon in the atmosphere in the very short term. Cut it, bang cut it, it and take it off. That's well, you could do, but cutting will eventually decompose and that, some of that carbon will go into the atmosphere in the medium to longer term. And I don't think that these sorts of balance sheets have actually been done. It's not quite as simple as yes and no. And I presume most of this is as popular now as it is because of global warming, climate yeah, yeah, change and yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. And a genuine desire to improve the quality of moorlands so that they become carbon sequestrating, they, they capture carbon. And that's a good thing. Everybody, I hope everybody agrees that that's a good thing. Um, no one is suggesting that you should be burning the moors in order to reduce the carbon stocks. It is no. a, a balance that's needed. It just appears that nobody actually has done any research and it's just conjecture being thrown around well, there are, to suit <laughs> people's agenda. <laughs> there, there, is, there is some research that's been done, but um, uh, it is... Uh, Not enough. I don't think there's enough, and I don't think there's enough of a, an overview to look at the, the data in what's called a meta-analysis uh, to take all the different pieces of work and try and build them together into a, a single story. That's very difficult actually, but um, it might be worth uh, looking at that as an alternative. And actually giving that to somebody in power and going, here's all the facts in one, mm -hmm. in one paper and mm -hmm. take it or leave it, but please take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd hope so. <laughs> we all hope so. Yeah. I tell you, it's been absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Thank you very, very much You're for meeting welcome. with me. And um, well, I, I, Thank you. That's okay. what I say. Thank Fine. you very much.